0: Welcome back to another edition of On the Record, the Daily Iowans weekly news podcast where we break down the paper's top headlines from the week. I'm your host and managing editor Eleanor Hildebrandt and I'm here with our producer Carly Dahlberg. On this week's episode we have three special guests. We will catch up with Daily Iowan news reporters Emily Nyberg and Colin Votsmeyer. Then we'll check in with Isabel Foland about her story on the Johnson County Agriculture Association asking for funding after missing deadlines and issues of embezzlement. Whether you're in the car, at home, or in the classroom, we'd like to welcome you to this Friday, October 7th edition of On The Record. In case you missed anything from last week, the DI's top headlines can be found on our website. This week, The Daily Iowan reported on... The Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research highlighted recent extreme storms and high temperatures that pose a deadly threat to trees across the state in its 2022 Iowa Climate Statement recommendations that were released on Wednesday. The statement recommends the need for increased tree populations to mitigate the effects of climate change. Iowa City will celebrate its 17th annual Dance Festival on October 7th and 8th. The festival consists of three different events, a dance installation at Public Space One, a free and open dance at Chauncey Swan Park, and a dance show at the James Theatre. And Johnson County Public Health is asking for feedback on community members' well-being with its recently launched community health assessment. The 2022 assessment went live on September 22nd and is available for Johnson County residents until October 21st. You can read all these stories and more in the Daily Islands print editions on Mondays and Wednesdays or online anytime at dailyiowan.com. More than a dozen teachers from the Hudson Community School District in Iowa have been diagnosed with breast cancer in the past decade. The striking numbers have led to a new University of Iowa project, which will investigate the cluster in the coming weeks. Emily Nyberg, a news reporter here at The Daily Iowan, is here to discuss what the project will look like and how the situation came about. Welcome back, Emily. We're excited to have you chat about this pretty unique story with us. How's everything been going so far? Pretty good, you know? midterms. (laughs) (laughs) A very busy week for students. Yes. Indeed. But you know, we've got some nice weather. Yes. It's a little bit hotter than I want it to be, but that's fine. (laughs) So can you start by telling us a little bit about how the school district and these teachers discovered the high number of breast cancer diagnoses that were happening within Hudson?
1: Yeah, so it actually started with one person, Diane Anderson. Um, She's a retired middle school teacher from Hudson Community School District, Um, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2020. I spoke with Diane for this story, and she said that following her diagnosis, she started to notice that many of her former colleagues had also been diagnosed with breast cancer and then became concerned about the number of cases within the district. She then contacted Ashley Ezio at the Iowa Department of Health, who put her in contact with researchers at the Iowa Cancer Registry, which is housed at the UI.
0: So that's kind of where the story took off from. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, this investigation was started by one person. Yes. But it does impact a lot of people (laughs) in a large district. So how is is the school district reacting to the number of people who have been diagnosed with breast cancer and the potential correlation that it, that, that has to the district?
1: Yeah, so the district is obviously concerned, um, and in an email statement to the Daily Iowan, Anthony Voss, the superintendent of Hudson's Community School District, wrote that the district is taking these concerns very seriously and is going to do everything they can to support the investigation at the UI.
0: For sure, and that's definitely necessary because yeah. they'll, they'll have more data on this than, than anybody else. Yes. And so as you mentioned, now. The University of Iowa, which is counties away, is involved with this school district with this investigative research. So how did that partnership come about? How did did the university and its cancer registry come into this picture and agree to work on this?
1: Yeah, so the UI got involved because the Iowa Cancer Registry is actually housed at the UI, and that's simply because of the amount of resources that the UI has. Um, And the principal investigator of the UI Cancer Registry will be leading the investigation. Her name is Mary Charlton, and she is um, an associate professor of epidemiology at the UI College of Public Health. So that's kind of how that correlation came to be
0: for sure. And obviously, the Iowa Cancer Registry at the University of Iowa usually tackles issues and clusters of cancer like this. But what challenges could the researchers face when they investigate environmental factors or explanations for this set of diagnoses?
1: Yeah, so the biggest challenge is going to be proving the cluster. There is a one in eight chance that a woman will be diagnosed with breast cancer in her life, which makes it really hard to prove the existence of an environmentally impacted cluster. So after getting, you know, data about personnel from the Hudson School District, the UI will then have that um, barrier to face. But Mary Charlton did say that even if they cannot prove the existence of this cluster, it will still provide very
0: valuable insight into cancer in Iowa. For sure. And so this cluster might just be kind of normal or something that that you'd see anywhere when it comes to that one in eight figure?
1: Yeah. So 12 has not been proven to be a large number yet. They're going to look into that. So they'll look into how many people are in the Hudson Community School District and how many of that number have cancer. And then they're also going to be looking into endocrine contributing factors. So that could be things in plastics, in paint, in chemicals. So they'll be looking into if any of that has been found in the
0: Hudson School District. For sure. And so all this is kind of a pretty recent development with Diane Anderson only receiving her diagnosis two years ago and then other Mm -hmm. people having that conversation about diagnoses and about the situation. So where do Hudson, the people impacted, and the university go from here? What are the next pieces of this process as an investigation begins to see if there is an environmental factor or that there is something kind of contributing to this?
1: Yeah, so it's going to be... A lot of unanswered questions for a pretty long time here coming up, especially for families, you know, concerned about their students and about their faculty in the district. But the next step is going to be getting the staff information from the district, which they're currently working with their legal team to see what depth of information they're allowed to provide um, legally. And then from there, just working with the cancer registry to get that all mapped out and see if there is a
0: correlation there definitely it's always smart to to go to lawyers and make sure there aren't any violations or anything (laughs) yes Uh, definitely a a research project to look into and to keep updated on as as it continues to develop but thank you so much Mm -hmm. for sitting down and chatting with us today emily hopefully we'll be able to have you back sometime soon yes thank you for having me Corridor Ketamine in Coralville opened late last month to provide ketamine therapy as an alternative antidepressant for patients who suffer from treatment-resistant depression. Daily Iowa news reporter Colin Votzmeyer covered the new healthcare option this week. Welcome, Colin. We're excited to have you on the podcast for the very first time today. How has your week been so far?
2: It's been good. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, very exciting to always have people on for the first time. Sure and so you wrote this story on the new ketamine clinic in the corridor so what exactly is ketamine therapy and who is it for
2: so ketamine therapy is sort of a um, alternative treatment for those who have depression um, specifically people who have treatment resistant depression and so ketamine therapy comes in the form of IV ketamine which is intravenous um, or through like the vein or um, Spravato which is S ketamine which is administered intranasally Um, so those are two of the main ways that it is administered to uh, these patients.
0: And for the story, you spoke with the co-owner of Gordor Academy, Trent Sassman. And what exactly did he have to say about the need for a clinic like this to be in the Johnson County community?
2: Trent was great. Uh, he talked a lot about how in the last few years, there have been uh, more of a focus on the need for mental health in not just the community around you know Johnson County and Iowa City or Coralville, uh, but all of uh, the U.S. And he said that with that, there kind of a need to put more attention on it and to give these underserved people this kind of therapy that they need and with ketamine that's just another way for him to do so um, for him and his partner
0: and obviously this is kind of a newer form of treatment for for depression and it's new to a lot of people and so obviously ketamine therapy is not super common it's a little bit more more new when it comes to depression treatments so what can residents of the corridor expect from this new business this new
2: Residents can probably expect, obviously, IV ketamine as an opportunity, um, as well as S-ketamine mm-hmm. or uh, Spravato um, as the main option for them. But more so with corridor ketamine, I think that the best thing that they can expect to receive is a comfortable, friendly, um, safe, and well-monitored environment, which really separates corridor ketamine from a lot of other treatment facilities in the way that they pride themselves in that.
0: And this isn't the first first administration of this type of therapy in eastern Iowa is it? Where else can, can people receive ketamine therapy?
2: So ketamine therapy can be received in uh, Iowa City here uh, with Midwest Ketafusion. So I did not get the chance to speak with them, but I know that they're, they've they been set up in Iowa City for a little while now. UIHC also has a clinic that's uh, under, well, Dr. Mark Nisu was one of the uh, physicians who works there, so I spoke to him about that. So they've got uh, ketamine as one of the options, as well as uh, electroconvulsive therapy, things like that, uh, as well as there's a place in Cedar Rapids that uh, was set up not too long ago for ketamine therapy. So there's multiple options around eastern Iowa, around the Johnson County, Lynn County kind of areas um, for this treatment to be administered.
0: And obviously, this is still a new business and a new healthcare option for people in the corridor and in Johnson County. So where does this clinic and ketamine therapy go from here?
2: Yeah, so Dr. Mark Nisiu spoke to me about this. He said that, well, he, he's the one of the doctors at UIHC. Also, with the clinic, as stated, but he said that one of the most exciting things recently was the 2018 FDA approval of Spravato. But it's not just going to stop there. Um, He said that's an exciting time to be in psychiatry, and that right now he's looking next to just kind of look into a little bit of the take-home ketamine that uh, would be a lot easier for patients to not have to go into the clinic to get. Uh, their treatment. They can take it right home. And it also is just as productive in in helping with some of these effects and also does a great job of really tackling the addiction side of Mm -hmm. ketamine, which is always a possibility, but the risk is much lowered if it's a take-home drug.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Colin, and, and sharing your story with us. We hope to have you back sometime soon.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Next up, we have news reporter Isabel Foland here to discuss her story on the Johnson County Agricultural Association asking the County Board of Supervisors for support through its financial hardships to help sustain the county fair after it missed a funding deadline and embezzlement plagued the association in recent years. Welcome back, Isabel. We're very excited to have you on to chat about your story. How's everything been going
3: for you? It's been good. I'm very excited to be on here again. Yeah,
0: we're happy to have you. And so what does the funding for the Johnson County Agricultural Association look like, and how has it
3: changed in recent years to facilitate this plea that the association is making to the County Board of Supervisors? So the Johnson County Ag Association has seen some recent funding cuts from the Board of Supervisors, with their recent funding going from $103,000 in 2020 to $89,400 in 2022
0: so a pretty steep decline yes which happens i mean you have many a variable including covid and mm-hmm all of that. And so another factor of this story is that there was some embezzlement within the association. Can you explain to us what kind of happened and how it impacted the funding the association now needs?
3: Yeah. So I spoke with Heather Johnson. Um, She's the new fairgrounds office manager for the Ag Association. Mm -hmm. And she told me that an employee embezzled around $62,000 from the association's funding from 2018 to 2020. Um, This has obviously hit them really hard and they're still trying to recover from this
0: that makes sense. $62,000 is a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so another factor of this is that the association also missed a funding deadline, which is super essential when it comes to accessing that money and potentially being
3: approved. So what happened there? What were, what were the obstacles that got in the way of that? So Johnson also told me that um, they basically just had some bad luck with employees. Um, so the previous office manager for the Ag Association didn't submit the necessary financial paperwork to the Board of Supervisors by the deadline that's outlined in their service agreement. So this means that the board of supervisors couldn't technically grant them any funding, but luckily the supervisors found a way to provide the association with $52,000, which they got through a grant funding venue as opposed to taxpayer money.
0: It's good that they, you know, at least got some of what they were looking for um, through, through a slight loophole there. And so now the association is asking for this funding after embezzlement, after missing deadlines and just some logistical issues with their staff. So how much are they specifically asking for and what exactly would these funds go to? to
3: ensure that the county fair remains intact and and goes on. So this meeting was discussion only, so there was no voting or actual action during it. And they also didn't talk in really concrete numbers. But the Ag Association made it clear that the $52,000 for this year, while it's greatly appreciated, it's definitely not enough money to Mm -hmm. support the fair. And they're also seeking more funding for renovating and repairing old fair buildings and also just in general ensuring that they can keep the fair free of charge for the people of Johnson County. For sure. And so obviously this
0: was a meeting, this was a discussion and a conversation that is going to continue. So what exactly happens now? How is the Board of Supervisors discussing this? And when could Johnson County residents see these funds hitting the association's bank account if they're approved and kind of allowing this county
3: fair to continue? So several supervisors said that in order for them to feel confident in giving the Ag Association more funding, they want to see better communication, specifically on where exactly this funding will go when it's used by the association. Supervisor John Green specifically also said that he wants more confidence that steps are being taken so that embezzlement won't happen again. The Ag Association assured him that they have implemented safety measures to prevent this happening, including cameras in the banking office and requiring checks to have two signatures. Like I said, this meeting was discussion only, so there's no clear date as to when exactly action we'll be taking um, on the issue of funding as of now. But uh, Heather Johnson said she felt this meeting was a very positive step to repairing the Ag Association and Board of Supervisors relationship.
0: For sure. Definitely just the conversation of transparency will have to continue after mm-hmm. all of these bits and pieces that create that relationship. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Isabel, and sharing this story with us. We look forward to reading more of your bylines soon. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Follow the Daily Iowan on social media and check our website for breaking news updates and the latest campus and Iowa City related news. We'll see you next week for a new edition of On the Record.